Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. On this week's episode, I'm talking to an old mate of mine, Andy Kane. Andy has traveled the world working for Puma and Nike and other global sports brands. He has so many cracking stories from Usain Bolt to Rihanna to Wayne Rooney. Andy is deep into the world of sport and business. Here's the man himself, Mr. Andy Kane. Kaney, we've known each other a long time and I've seen that, you know, over the years you've worked for Nike, Puma, Foot Locker and one of the biggest events in the UK, Great North Run. Did it all start for you at Loughborough? Uh, well, uh, it started with me uh, as an ambitious young athlete wanting to represent Great Britain um, and Loughborough was the place to head to. So um, a bit of history in the family there. My dad actually went to Loughborough. Um, and uh, at the time, in, the, in like the late, well, up until uh, probably not so long ago, Loughborough was the place to go if you had any ambitions to be an athlete and also get an education at the same time. Um, so yeah, um, had to get my ass to Loughborough and uh, in order to to run faster, basically, and uh, that's what happened. <laughs> Went to Loughborough in nineteen ninety five. Ninety five. Wow, wow. And so you were you're, you're a lad from you're a Geordie lad. Went to Loughborough. Yeah. And uh, what did yeah. you study there? Uh, well, I started off doing engineering. Uh, I've got to go back a bit. I'm looking up here trying to remember what the hell I did. Uh, I don't think I attended many lectures because I was too busy running. Join the club. Engineering first, product design. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember. <laughs> uh, 1995 to 97, I was product design, manufacturing, engineering. Hated it. Too many lectures, too much maths, not enough drawing, coloring in pictures and stuff. Thought it was going to be all about that. Wasn't at all. Um, and then um, and then really wanted to focus on the... Uh, on the athletics really on my training which you had to if you're going to be serious you had to make a lot of sacrifices and um and saw all these guys wandering around campus wearing purple tracksuits i thought that looks that looks easy i'll have a bit of that <laughs> and so i did <laughs> but at the same time actually doing a degree that was very pertinent to actually where i wanted to head into you know sports management uh, exercise science physiology sports psychology you know everything was in there that that actually I could completely relate to. I could not relate to thermodynamics and fluid mechanics and all sorts of other stuff that the engineers were throwing at me. Um, it just wasn't where I wanted to head. So it was the, it was the right move um, in all seriousness, and it was a it was the best thing to do. Good, 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 good. So we we met on the PE sports science course twenty odd years yeah, ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the two lectures that we probably attended. Yeah, as well. <laughs> <laughs> two lectures a week. I, think. I, I was knackered all the time. Like loads of people on there were athletes or best tennis players or what. I mean, you remember them all. Um, we had a right laugh on that course, yeah, but it, it was, was uh, it was full of it was full of a lot of talent, like sports talent, Unbelievable serious talent. talent. Yeah, um, all the names that have gone through that course at Loughborough, um, like historically as well. There, it's um, it's really really something special. It is, isn't it? Absolutely. Good alumni, absolutely. So then, let's move on from Loughborough. Let's get to the exciting bits. This, um, where did it all start for you then, when you uh, first got the job for Nike, and how did you get the job? Yeah, so 2003 um, starts. So basically, graduated uh, same same year as you in 2000. Um, you went your direction on uh, on events, and I went my direction, still focusing on um, on my athletics. So I was full time athlete for pretty much two and a half years. Then I thought, right, I need to give it up until this point, and then I need to get a get a get on the corporate ladder. And I and I wanted to join Nike. It was the best brand to join. It was you know it stood for everything that I believed in: elite performance, being number one. Um, you know, 
push, 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 drive, drive, drive. Um, and yeah, just applied for a, a tech rep role, which was basically sitting in a car driving around the country, teaching store staff about Nike products. And um, that's where it started. And it, and it tied in with my running. I was still kind of doing a bit of running with that as well, um, which kind of overlapped for a couple of years, which was, uh, which was good because Nike gave me some time to do that as well. So just breaking it down, what actually did you do for Nike day to day? Give an example. Yes, I mean, I mean, I eventually, like, pretty quickly, I moved into sales. So, um, and obviously, when you're selling Nike, Nike is a bit easier to sell a shoe with a swoosh on the side than it is with three stripes or Reebok or whatever else. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, having said that, at the time, I was uh, I was put in charge of managing the JD business. So, everybody who's listening here will know I've heard of JD Sports in the UK, an absolute behemoth now of what they were then. Um, you know, back then they only had 300 stores in the UK. Now they've got nearly um, 800 across Europe and they've been buying, buying up a lot of competitors as well in a huge digital business. Um, so my job at the time was just to basically any footwear, any Nike footwear that was in JD was my responsibility. And it was a great time to do it. I mean, it was a difficult time. Nike was, Nike was struggling with a bit of innovation. Nothing was coming through. Um, the pipelines, you know, Adidas were really, really going hard at the whole retro tennis look and things like that, superstars. Um, and also there was a huge counterfeit problem coming out of the Far East with Nike. Like we were trying to launch shoes. We would like I was presenting shoes to the JD guys, like new innovations, and they'd already seen counterfeits coming out of the factories, like getting sold in pubs in in Berry and places like that. It was an absolute it was a it was really damaging. Wow. I mean, like a shoe that would be selling for 90 quid in JD, the counterfeits would be doing 35 quid. Down the down the down the pub around the corner of the warehouse. It was just, it was nuts, and it, it came to a bit of a head where we launched this new shoe, shoe called the Air Max Three Hundred and Sixty, and it was the first time a, a full visible air unit had been incorporated into a shoe, um, as the name suggests, three hundred and sixty degrees. And uh, and I remember showing them the sample, and the and, and the head buyer, who's now in charge of JD, Mike Armstrong, smashing guy. Um, the most knowledgeable guy in the business said to me, he said, he said, Kenny, he said, don't bother showing it me. I've seen it already. Um, it's fucking shite. <laughs> <laughs> like, which was because Mike called it as he always called it. Yeah. It's like, and, and, I mean, to be fair, to be fair, the guy, the guys were always excited about new innovation, but they needed Nike to work. Nike really the only brand out there that can, that, that the consumer really expects true innovation from. Everybody else is a bit like, you know, here and there. And Adidas try their best, but they're all. I always liken the sports brands to top athletes. Nike is like Usain Bolt. Nike doesn't care about the competition. It's just just asked about pushing itself, driving itself further, further, further. Adidas is like your Tyson Gay. He was always worried about trying to beat Usain. And on a, he probably would, but most of the time he get his ass kicked. And then the ones, you know, the, the Pumas, the also runs who are just happy to make the final, just like waving at the moment, dad in the crowd sort of thing. <laughs> Um, and that was always the difference for me. Nike, and it still is, it's still the case. Nike is still driving, driving, driving innovation. I mean, Nike now, they come out with innovations, but they don't just come out with the innovative shoe. They come out with the manufacturing processes and innovate the manufacturing processes, put paint on machines and technologies at that far end of the process, not the paint on the product you see in the shops. I mean, they do, but they put the paints on the design processes at the very start of the process. So you cannot even get near the, the concept on a bit of paper and mind a, a finished product. It's, it's genius. Wow. It really is. Wow. And you were there and you were there for how long? Uh, pretty much five years. Yeah. Yeah. And it was exciting because we were, we were always like, uh, yeah, you know, coming up with new projects with Nike's design team. I mean, I was more on the, on the fashion lifestyle side with JD as anybody who goes into JD knows, you know, it's, it's mainly sort of sneakers um, for the, for the um, fashion side of things. They do a bit of performance, but you know, we had great stuff. We had like the, Max 95 anniversary, 
which was fantastic. We got a great artist from Liverpool called Dave White. We set up like a studio in Carnaby Street. It was like all the sneakerheads came down. It was great fun. Uh, we had the Air Force One anniversary, which was huge. That was 25 years, which um, if anybody knows sneakers out there, that was the first ever basketball shoot to have an air unit in it. Um, and then other things like Nike Free. People probably have heard about Nike Free. Mm. And that was like the barefoot technology being really flexible. And it and it completely flopped. It like lasted for two weeks of that, the campaign. And it completely flopped. And yet, probably what, 10, 10 years later, it just launched it launched again, uh, like halfway through the the last decade. And uh, and it took off. Like the consumer was ready for it. Sometimes the consumers just aren't ready for the innovations that you're putting out there. Um but yeah, I mean, I mean, that was in like five years and it was jam packed and it was like, you know, launches all the time and it was, you know, stuff going wrong. I mean, another good one was I had to sell football boots into JD as well. And this was at the time where colored football boots were like just starting to creep in and everybody, you know, from our generation, especially our dads, be like, what are you wearing a colored football <laughs> boot for, man? You should be wearing black. Get your black leather boot out. Give it a polish. <laughs> you know, a thing that weighs like half a, half a kilo yeah. in the boot. when it gets wet, it weighs two kilos yeah. and clotted yeah. with mud. So this was at the, the period of just launching colored boots. And, and I had this, I had I'd sold in like 40,000 pairs into JD, this bright yellow T90 boot. And Wayne Rooney was going to be wearing it the first time on this match that weekend when it launched. So the weekend comes, Wayne Rooney comes on pitch wearing black boots. And I'm like, head of me hands, what the, like, what the where's fucking yellow boots? So then one morning for what happens, first thing, I get 20,000 pairs cancellation from JD and email saying, Kaney, you told me Wayne would be wearing yellow boots. He wasn't. Here's your cancellation. Oh, Cheers. no way. And basically what had happened is in the changing room, Sir Alex Ferguson had, had seen Wayne lacing up these yellow boots and he said, you're not putting them on because you're just going to be a target for all the big daft defenders going, oh, here, look at fancy Wayne with his colored boots on. And they'll just be like, Sir Alex just said, there's no way you're going on pitch like that. And he just kiboshed. So the whole campaign like global campaign for Nike was completely just kaput. Because of you. Sir Alex didn't want Wayne. Yeah, because of me. Thanks. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for coming, Kane. Yeah. As your P45. Yeah. So, but, then, but then look, and then look what happened. It was like, and now the evolution, like nobody wears black boots now, yeah. unless like they're not sponsored and it's kind of making a statement sort yeah. of thing of saying, here I am, I'm not sponsored. Yeah. Great. It's amazing how quickly things turn. It's crazy, isn't it? What, what, what years were those? What years were you there? That was uh, that was between 03 and 07, yeah. They must have yeah. been good times, man. Great times, yeah. I mean, that was a time retail was changing as well. You know, that was when e-com was just starting to creep in. You know, oh, this e-com thing, yeah, we'll put a, put a few shoes online, see what happens. You know, none of these ASOS didn't exist. You know, ProDirect didn't exist. None of these e-com pure players existed. You know, Jay, it was like everyone was just asked about the stores, get the shoes in the stores, and that was it. You know, digital was just kind of creeping in. and um it's incredible now to, especially now in covid where everyone's like shutting the shops and it's like anybody who doesn't have digital now is is uh is just considered a dinosaur mm. uh, it really really is how, how much how much are you personally spending with jd sports each year can you remember well um well they were spending with me so they were yep. they were buying the, the gear off yep. me i mean it was about 100 130 million dollars and that was just that was just footwear but then again, that was when it was tiny. So it was like, and that was in Nike money. So it's all like, it's not pounds and it's not retail value and all that sort of thing. But it was around about, um, I was around about 60% of their business, I think. Um, yeah, around about that. I mean, that's going back some time to try and troll up those memories yeah. and figures. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but since then, Nike's just shot like crazy. I mean, I've just been looking at some figures this morning. I mean, you know, COVID hit. If you look at everyone's share prices, COVID hit. 
everyone tanked in February. Nike dropped to around about $50, $50 $60 per share um, from around about 80, 90, you know, around about December time, which was like an all-time wow. high. And, and now where is it now? It's 125 bucks per share. Wow. So it's at an all-time high based on Nike driving digital, 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 digital all the time. And, and everyone's just flocking. I mean, they're an absolute... Um, uh, they're, they're doing all the right things at all the other brands now. Typically, like I said, Usain Bolt out in front. Everyone's playing catch up. Yeah. That's what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where and where were you based? Uh, that at the time, so Manchester. We had like a big sales office in Manchester. But again, like um, almost almost you know seeing COVID coming, Nike really condensed all of its operations. It started to shut all these little regional hubs down. You know, shut down all these smaller accounts that you know. Let's just focus all the attention on the big guys. Um, and then pull all these, eventually pull all these big guys into central European functionality and shutting down um, even, um, you know, UK offices or France offices or, mm-hmm. which I mean, Under Armour has just announced uh, last week, Under Armour has just shut down all its European offices and it's just running out of Amsterdam head office. Um, and until further notice, it's like everyone's working remotely. Let's see how we get on with this. You know, showrooms now we're all digital. People aren't seeing physical product anymore. I mean, Nike... Nike, just an example, they're, they're, the samples they used to make for salesmen for us to then go and show to the account, globally, out of all the sales guys, it was like something that, it was like their third biggest, if it was an account buying from them, it was like the third biggest global account. Because you're producing, producing product for like all these showrooms across the world, and now it's all been done digitally. Huge savings. I mean, the outlay in digital would do it, but you've got huge savings. Well, I, th- I think you would take the digital outlay over the... Uh... <laughs> Over the office overhead and everything else yeah. that goes with it, wouldn't you? Well, and of course, you can because you can make changes as well. We get samples through, and it's like, oh, the emails would come through afterwards saying this, this is going to change to that, it's going to change to this, that tongue. And she's like, what? So it's a completely different shoot. Uh, forgotten already. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, great to see the evolution as with everything. You know, innovate or die. Mm. I mean, that was one of uh, that was one of Nike's maxims. Absolutely. So you were there till two thousand and seven. You must have seen a massive change with social media just coming in. In 2007, yeah. 2008, 2009. Yes, yeah, yeah. What made you What made you leave Nike in the end? Uh, so, uh, interesting story here is, um, so the Great North Run, as, w- as we'll come on to talk about, um, the Great North Run was actually set up in 1981 by my father and Brendan Foster. Um, Brendan came back from seeing an event in New Zealand where he was out training um, with this idea of doing a mass participation run event. You know, Brendan was at the top of his career at that time, world holder, Olympic medalist, um, and he wanted to do the same thing in his hometown in Newcastle. And him and dad had been mates for years, you know, both Gates at Harriers. And so they set up the Great North Run and, and, and been running it since. And, and I'd always felt as if at some point in my career, I'd, I'd want to go and do a stint at the Great North Run. Um, and a, the, the dream job, if you like, came up to be the elite athlete manager for the Great Run series in 2007. So Bren um, sat down, Bren gave me a call and... Um, um, obviously, I could not be dad giving me a call. <laughs> so, Brett, hey, dad. Oh, yeah. Hey, dad, what do you want? Oh, I'm a fucking, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just, well, it's funny, I heard, because I heard, um, I listened to Barry Hearn's uh, interview that you did with him, and he's talking about that fist fight he had with his son, Eddie. It's like, I tell you what, I could not be having, yeah. Father and son in the business, it's kind of a little yeah. bit tricky, but, yeah. um, but uh, but yeah, so so Brent gave, gave me a call, and he said, uh, he said, Andy, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm at Nike, you know where I am. And uh, anyway, he, he gave me the big sell. And literally, it's like the dream job. So basically, I'm going to pay you, Andy, to 
travel around the world, go and sit with all the agents of the athletes. And I want you to bring all the best athletes to the great North run, the great Manchester run, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I was, I was a distance runner myself, so it was a sport I loved. I knew the athletes. I knew the agents already. I got it all. I knew the event, like, you know, practically a family business. It was like, I was never going to say no. And it came at a point where, um, I'd kind of, my next move for me with Nike was going to be abroad. And at that time I didn't fancy that. So, so yeah, so joined uh, joined the Great Run team. Wow, well, well, well. Tell me a bit, little bit more about the Great North Run. How many people at that event each year? All right, so uh, so the Great North Run um, initially, I think it was five thousand people in nineteen eighty one, and it's now fifty five thousand. Whoa! How much do it? Uh, do you know that's a good question? Roughly. I mean, it's it's. I think it's about fifty quid. Don't quote me. I good, need to check that. Good sums. But I think it's about. Yeah. Don't mind spinning. <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, yeah. So I mean, like, like your revenue model on on something like the Great North Run, it, it's it's entries, it's local authorities, and it's um, and it's um, commercial sponsorship. Yeah. That that's kind of your, they're kind of your three streams, yeah. as as you know with your events that you run, and you know you, you know what Barry was talking about last night as yeah. well. He's talking about revenue streams on on how you get yeah. things going. So um, obviously, the big sell to local authorities is you're you're getting all these people coming in from all over the country, bringing in revenue to the to the northeast. You know, hotel nights, restaurant expenditure, um, but then also you're doing a, a, a lot for um, people's well-being, promoting health. You know, it could be an all year round thing. Um, and you know, the the onset of the digital age, if you like, has been able to engage in these consumers throughout the year instead of just say take your fifty quid, let's see you on the day, and then see yeah. you in three hundred and sixty four days again, which yeah. you don't want to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the Great North Run, biggest in the world, fifty-five thousand people, um, all one start, um, and incredibly, a f- and impressive. a family business as well. Lovely. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm. I mean, that for me, that makes. I'm super proud of what Dad's achieved. Yeah. Um, and obviously with Brendan as well, and there, there was a couple of others on the team. Um, Eric Wilkins as well, who was the who was the finance head yeah. behind it. But again, all these guys were ex-Nike guys as well, because Dad and Bren and Eric set up Nike Europe back in the '80s. So there was yeah. a bit of a the history link oh, there wow. with me and Nike, funnily enough, yeah. Um, what did they so, do there? Um, well, they basically, at the time in the 80s, Nike was a lot of little sort of importers who were taking it from the US and, yeah. you know, a little bit in France, a little bit in the UK, yeah. and nobody was doing it properly. So Brennan, um, Dad, um, basically started pulling it all together. I had a, a sit-down with Phil Knight at the time, because, again, Bren was, I think, Nike athlete at the time. And, and they just used all their connections and their know-how in the sport. Because, again, Nike back then was just running to get it, going properly in Europe, you know, because they were, Dad and Bren were top athletes and they knew everybody in the sport in mm. Europe. The Americans didn't, Phil Knight didn't really know what to do in Europe. Mm. And they also helped to set up Nike football in Europe as well, develop the first football boots. But, um, but I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can get Brendan on for you. Yeah, that's a separate conversation about Brendan that one. Yeah. But yeah. you know what, it all comes back down to creating win-wins again. You know, I look at you at, at Nike and, and JD Sports, that was a great win-win for both parties. You coming onto the Great North Run with your old man and Bren, another win-win. But it also comes down to contacts. They're bringing you yep. in now because you are well connected. Tell me about some of the connections you've brought to the table. Well, I mean, uh, from a um, from a Great North Run perspective, um, what we had there was um, the events were already up and running. But obviously, because I was already involved in the sport, I already knew all. Of, you know, I knew the new crop of athletes coming through. So I had those relationships, you know, with people like Mo or people like Paula. I mean, you know, I know Paula's retired now, but, um, you know, at the time when we were at Loughborough, Paula was living in Loughborough and yeah. Paula and I used to train a lot, you know, Gary, her husband, there was a, there was a little group of us that 
that used to train a lot. Paula, so, you know, those Paula relationships. Paula, sorry, Paula Radcliffe. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for <laughs> first name terms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Paula Radcliffe um, and all the guys in Loughborough. Like, Loughborough, like I said, Loughborough was the place to be as an athlete. And then, so all the best ones were there. So they're the connections that you make. Um, and you kind of, you, you, you underestimate, I always used to look at dad and think, how, how do you have all these connections? Like, where do these connections come from? And actually from, if you look at all the people we were at with Loughborough, yeah. so many, so many of us have gone on to get in these positions of, of, of sport. Yeah. Um, and it's really, really, it's just, I just love, I love seeing it. And then we can, you know, we do, we do this sort of thing yeah. and we swap ideas and we, and we just, it's, it's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, my, my bring to the table was the athlete side of it. Um, but also on the swimming side, because Brendan, uh, mass participation head on, build up to 2012, wanted to really engage and as many people in the UK want to get a million people in the UK doing activity through mass participation events. So we had about a quarter of a million through all the running events with the Great North Run, the Great Manchester Run, the Great South Run, the Great Island Run, da, 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 like 12, 15 events a year, all running events. Mm. Then he said, right, we want to do mass participation swimming events. So in 2008, open water swimming appeared for the first time in the Olympics. And Britain, we smashed three out of the six medals. You know, Kerry Ann Payne, Cassie Patton, Dave Davis brought home um, uh, two silvers and a bronze. And so, like, we were, you know, Great Britain was like, you know, go Britain. We've got, a, we've got you know, medals build up for 2012. We're going to win all the golds. And it was just great. It was a great atmosphere in sport at the time. You'll remember it. Yeah. You know, the, the country was flying towards 2012. And he just said, right, ops team, you guys go and find the locations. Kaney, you go and get the best athletes in the world swimming. And I was like... I'm a runner. I don't even, I can't even swim. I don't mind knowing any swimmers. But then I was, of course, I was like, aha, but I went to Loughborough with a load of swimmers. Yeah. So you, you remember them all from our, our yeah. course. Yeah. So in fact, the first person I called was Ros Brett. Oh, amazing. Remember? Yeah, I did. And I just, and it can, Ros was a, Ros was like a, a top Commonwealth. I think she was Commonwealth medalist. She might even had medals yeah. at Worlds. I don't know. I remember just saying, uh, Ros, I need your help. Uh, I need some swimmers to chuck in a lake. He's like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? Brilliant. I'll pay them. I don't care. I'll pay them. Just tell me what I need to do. And literally it was like a hundred quid and I took them on a night out and you're getting all the best swimmers in the world. Because most of the best swimmers in the world are the British or Australia. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I brought those connections as well. And, uh, and um, yeah. Swimming was a great fun. And now tell me about the big dog. Who did you yeah, bring insane. to the table in, to Manchester? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was that was probably, um, and again, talk, listening to what Barry said on your interview about uh, innovation, you know, how he innovated snooker, how he innovated darts, how he innovated box, all of that. It's like, if you stand still, then you're you're dead in the water. Yeah, and one one thing that um, Brendan Foster is incredibly because I I reported into Brendan directly throughout this whole time um, because Brendan loves sport. He loves the athletes. He, he just wants to do everything about them. It's his passion. Um, but Brendan's always thinking. He's always thinking. And and sometimes sometimes you're kind of in the middle of something and he comes like, oh no not again not another one. But he's just like comes up with incredible ideas all the time. And he was always trying to push, push, push the boundaries. And because athletics is his is, is heart, you know, athletics at the time and, and actually sadly now still is, it's, it's a really tough sport to market and yeah. sell. People aren't as interested anymore. You know, it's the way it's formatted on TV is, is, is not conducive anymore because there's so many more distractions now for the, for the consumer. I mean, it's not sport. If you think you're in sport, you're wrong. You're in entertainment. You're fighting for the consumer's entertainment yeah. time. And where, you know, kids now are all on these mobile phones and they're after three seconds of attention on Instagram. It's like, or TikTok or whatever. Mm. 
and you're trying to get them to sit still for four hours of you know athletics on tv that is just drawn out it's it's just never going to work so so 2008 um again when brendan wanted to innovate swimming um to mass participation he also said uh in addition to swimming guys i want to have and this is when usain was like you know coming on the scene before he won the treble in 2008 olympic he was like right guys i want to bring athletics to the streets i want to bring track and field to the streets i don't want it in stadiums We've got it because you kind of get people to go to stadiums. People don't want to buy tickets and sit there for four hours and get you know get soaked by rain on the back straight and Gateshead or Sheffield or wherever. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to put it in the city centres and have it so people just walking down shopping will see the world's best athletes and so it's really used as a vehicle for marketing the sport. And so this is where the idea of the city games came up, the great city games. And so his rationale was, you know, we take we take our circus to Manchester or the or Newcastle or Portsmouth or wherever for these big. 10Ks and half marathons, and the BBC coming to town with all their filming equipment. Well, that's always on the Sunday. Well, let's do some on the Saturday that we can take advantage of all this equipment and stuff in town as well. So it was like, it was always like City Games on a Saturday and then participation running event on a Sunday. So you had like a full weekend of sport taken over the city. Um, another thing Brendan used to say was, um, you, you, you can't, uh, you, 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 there's no point creating an event if you don't create chaos. You've got to have people like stopping still. You can't you know, have life still going on. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and, and so that was the, uh, so the nation was, it was like, again, ops team, go and work out how to build a track on a street that's perfectly flat and it feels like you're running in a stadium. Otherwise the athletes won't come. And, uh, Kaney, I want you to go and get the best athletes in the world. Um, and make sure Usain Bolt's on the list. I was like, <laughs> okay, right. This was this was like now just as as he'd won the treble. I'm like Brendan, you realize he just won the treble out in Beijing. He's not gonna he's gonna be wrapped in cotton wool forever now, and he's not and the coach isn't gonna allow him to do anything. He's like, ah, uh, don't care. The track. He's like, looks at the ops team, said the boys are gonna make sure the track's fine. You just go and get Usain, please, <laughs> and I'll worry about the rest. I was like, all right, but, and that was it. So I was so in 2000, I was and by the way, I knew nothing about sprinting as well. Like you remember Loughborough? It was like distance runners on one side of the yeah. track sprinters you know we call them the pretty boys yeah. on the other side yeah. of the track they do no training and just look at themselves all day <laughs> like it was like i don't even know i don't know the difference between an 11-1 sprinter and a 9-8 sprinter yeah. i knew nine sounded good if it wasn't even like 10 so um so yeah so i basically then had to go and find you saying the good thing was um usain's manager a guy called ricky sims one of the biggest managers agents in in the world of track and field doesn't he look um, after mo farrah as well yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so Ricky started out managing a whole stable of endurance athletes, and I'd been doing business with Ricky for the past four years. I'm sorry, the great run business had been doing business with Ricky for for um, a heck of a long time. So he he was comfortable with the great run. He knew what we were about. He knew we looked at the athletes, um, and uh, he also managed um, Usain, which was fantastic. I mean, like a complete. I mean, how how Usain um, and Ricky came together was. A bit lucky because you know Ricky's background in the maker and stuff, it kind of fell into his lap, which was great. Again, Ricky would be perfect to go on your show mm. to try and do that. Mm. Where's, um, where is he? Jamaica. So, and Ricky lives in Monte Carlo. He's Irish. Um, likes his football. Used to be based in London, but yeah, Usain's in Jamaica. Yeah. Um, but um, but yes, yeah, so I just I was like, well, okay, I'll just pick the phone, and speak to Ricky. So actually, this is like uh, Usain won the won the treble in the Olympics. He did two more races in Europe. He did Zurich and um, um, Brussels, the two diamond leagues. 
and that was when he was like superstar and he was like Usain shot the sport to the uh, you know to the stratosphere he, he took it with him he was a superstar everybody suddenly became aware of you know the bolt pose yeah. in 2008 he won the treble never done all that stuff so the sport was on a high but obviously because he sport was on a high then Usain's fees were on a high as well so we uh, so I rang Ricky up I was like Ricky and uh, <laughs> got this idea <laughs> do you think about this and I sold it into Ricky he was comfortable with everything because I had a great relationship with Ricky um, we uh, you know we talked about the uh, we talked about the Benjamins as well how much that was going to be um, and uh, and basically had the deal done in December of, of 2008 and the event we were aiming for was in May Manchester in 2009 and it was going to be his first appearance in Europe since he won the treble so it was a huge a huge deal as well um and yeah that was that was how we got to that point okay you saying so how did you get him into the country for this one event for one day and how much was yeah he? so this is yes yeah, so, well he was put it straight he was uh he was doing 150 meters and he was he uh, i'll not tell you exactly because that's <laughs> confidential okay but it was it was over it was over a grand a meter put it that way <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at we're looking at north of 150 grams a day good bit of work and put it this way and we got value for money for that bet, as well I so bet. we got a lot of that another, another win win another win exactly yeah <laughs> win wins exactly yeah <laughs> everybody's got to walk away happy both yep, sides absolutely. both sides are happy that's absolutely. the deal yeah. uh, but no well we were we were everybody was happy up until uh, up until the shit started they hit the fan um, not far out from that event so there was a there was a couple of things a couple of funny stories in the build up to that so Usain was in the bag but we couldn't announce him I couldn't tell anybody that the deal was done apart from Brendan and we we let the BBC know um, and we were we, we were we also were going to um, try and film it with Sky for the first time in 3D. Yeah. So the first time an outdoor athletics event had been filmed in 3D. So we kind of intimated that as well. So there were very few people knew that the deal had been done. But I had to go out and get people to run against him. You know, people to come and, and race against Usain, which <laughs> wasn't an easy thing to start with. <laughs> Never mind I was paying these athletes to come and do it. But you can imagine, like, saying, you're going to put me on a stage in front of everybody. He's just the fastest guy in the world. And there's only four <laughs> lanes, not eight. Oh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll stand out a bit there, guys. But, um, but it was all right. But they, 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 it was funny talking to some of the athletes. I had to go and do some of the indoor circuits in January and February to, to go and get the athletes, basically. So I was out in Boston in February, like 25 foot of snow, um, freezing cold. And uh, I remember talking to one agent, explaining to her the concept of what we're doing. And she was brilliant. She went, she went, you're going to what? Oh, nah, that'll never work. You'll never get any athletes for that. Already knowing that I've got Usain in my back pocket, Quality. deal's done. And I was just itching to say, well, I've got Usain coming, <laughs> darling. So if you don't want to be part of it, don't worry about it. <laughs> brilliant. Uh, anyway, so, so she, she was like, you know, I was like, okay, fine. And then she was like, well, are you going to take my number? Then I'm like, well, I don't need it, do I? Because you're not going to be interested in it. So I need that for us. So anyway. Long story short, she eventually, years later, started to pick the phone up and say she had athletes. But um, it was it was because it was such a new concept and it had never been done before. It was you know people struggled to get their head around it. But it was purely it was like for the good of the sport. That's mm. what it was. It was like marketing the sport, changing the format, fast action, right up close. You know, athletes able to sort of high five the, the kids on the street. You know, all that sort of stuff. You know, free to watch. It was it was just it was a marketer's dream for the sport. Mm. Um, and then, um, and then, as we were building close to the event, obviously, then we announced his name, and everything went crazy. Um, like press conferences where we normally get like you know 
10 maybe journalists rock up to a press conference where you got the top athletes we had like 150 wow. trying to rock up we had to like <laughs> change the venue four times and stuff because of the whole thing it was all it was a Usain Bolt show I mean like at the same weekend we had Haile Gabra Selassie also running in the 10k the day after but nobody really cared about yeah. that god bless him yeah it was all about, it was the Usain Bolt show so um so we're getting near and near an event and you know I'm building the athletes I'm putting the fields around we had the men and the women um so you know women were like Christina Horugu you know, one of our greatest ever 400 meter athletes. Um, again, you know, Olympic gold medalist um, for the women's race. The athletes were all getting excited about it. And then six weeks out, um, the idea was that the athletes would come and run heats and finals to qualify to get through, um, which is fine because meant I got two races out of Usain instead of one. Theoretically, as long as he didn't get um, false started, which you know, a little a little word in the starters <laughs> here to just uh, make sure nobody false started was uh, was all right. <laughs> Um, but nobody actually ever full started, to be fair on that, um, which is funny because in a, in a city, you've got noises going off all the time. You know, in a stadium, everyone goes, shh, quiet, start. In a city, you've got like car alarms going off. You've got people screaming, shouting. No, this didn't make any difference. <laughs> it didn't make any difference at all. Um, but uh, yeah, so six weeks out, um, I'm at another event uh, that we were organizing. And I, I woke up uh, on the Sunday morning. I remember it specifically. And I had like seven or eight text messages on my phone. Um, saying, oh, Kaney, what are you going to do? You're knackered now. Oh, things are, things are really screwed. Usain's injured. I'm like, what? What the? Turn the news on. And the first thing I see is, is the image of Usain's BMW uh, M3 oh upside down. I remember. In a, in a grass virgin. Interestingly, the BMW that Puma bought him for winning the treble in Beijing, like, you know, six months before that. You know, uh, Recaro racing seats. It's like, yeah. clearly he's been like racing like a, like a nugget. <laughs> And, um, and uh, yeah, he, he, he basically rolled his car um, six weeks from the event. And uh, he, um, he'd got out of the car. He was fine, ironically, because he had the Recaro racing seats in his bucket seats. They strapped him in and held him tight, so mm. he, wasn't, he wasn't hurt. The thing that hurt him was because he was wearing flip-flops, and he got out of the car and stood on some thorns in a bush on the side that of the road. <laughs> that's, that's the only, that was the only damage. So he had to go to hospital to get these. I mean, you know, they're not little UK thorns are proper Jamaica yeah, thorns. They're yeah, like yeah. six inch nails and they were pulling these big things out of his feet. And um, so I rang Ricky up and I was like, I was like, Ricky, uh, look, just, I don't need to know now. Just give us a call in a couple of days when the dust settle, when you know what's going on and we'll talk about it. So obviously I'm a little bit worried. Everyone in the business is calling me up saying, Kenny, what's the latest? And I'm just like, guys, just give me two days. They're just sorting things out. <laughs> Get off my back because I don't know. <laughs> I've not asked for anything until you give me two days yeah. just to give us a bit of space. Um, Had you signed the contract by then? Yeah. So yeah. everything was everything was done. But I mean, a contract. You, if you if your athlete can't run, you know, yeah. if you if you you can't you can't do anything about that. But what we did because um, he was a huge Man United fan, um, and. We used a bit of, uh, so Bren's got a great relationship with Sir Alex at Man United. And so what we did is um, just as part of like an incentive, a sweetener, and also to elevate the profile of the event, we'd arranged with Sir Alex to um, take Usain to go and meet the team at Carrington for, the, uh, for a training session and then also to go to a game um, that afternoon as well um, um, to see them play because he'd been a fan all his life, but he'd never seen them. So, so Bren got Sir Alex to, to personally write a letter of invitation to Usain to say, Usain, here you're coming to Manchester, 
Can't wait for it to, to see you here. I want you to come and meet the guys, spend a day with them training, then come to the come to the ground, watch your game. And it was like the last game of the season where Manu had won the title anyway, and they were getting the trophy. And it was so and, and we'll we'll get you to do an on-pitch walk as well, you know, in at half time, you know, doing that. And he's like and, and this was the thing. After after it, the whole thing had finished and the event was done, you know, Ricky, his agent, said to me, he said, Kenny, you know what? Despite Coach Mills not letting him, not wanting him to come and race because of his thorns in his feet. He said, there was no way Usain was never going to come purely because he just wanted to go to Man United and meet the guys and see them play. <laughs> so it was just like, it was a nice little, nice little touch. I mean, from like a rider perspective, there was no rider. It was just like, um, it was literally, uh, it was just McDonald's and Chinese takeaway. Literally like after the press conference, uh, sorry, after the training ground, we had to go to the press conference and I was like, Usain, what are what do, you, what do you want to eat? And he's like, uh, just McDonald's, man. McDonald's. <laughs> Literally. Pull, I'll tell you now, because in, in one of those big Viano vans, yeah. you know, the Mercedes Viano, yeah, 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 yeah. pulled up outside McDonald's. I got out, ordered about 15 boxes of chicken nuggets and milkshake back in the van. That was it. I'm, kid, I'm kidding you not. I shit you not. That's exactly what. And the whole week, he's just like enjoying his fast food. And then he goes back to Jamaica, like they all do, and they live for like months yeah. on an end and eat good food and stuff. But, yeah. you know, this is like their little... A little moment and, and freedom what's his personality it. like is it the same on the track as it is off the track yeah yeah i mean it's jamaican it's like and he, he, i brought a few of his training partners with him and just chilled out really relaxed you know the um uh, i mean we, you know we organized a party afterwards as well and he was on the dance floor all night and um you know not not like uh not like drinking or anything no, just no, like just having a great life. time and yeah. yeah yeah we had like a private party and it was it was uh you know we had to we had to get him to the airport at six thirty in the morning, and we just went straight from the nightclub to the airport. It was simple as that. It was how just, like, you, just full of life. How long did you have him over for from start to finish? Uh, four days in the end. So it was, it was uh, well four days. It was it was Wednesday to Sunday. Yeah, yeah. What a, what a great story that is, mate. Yeah, what did yeah. uh, what did you what did you do after moving on from that? Then did you go to work for, within the Olympics in twenty twelve? Did you see him there? What was your next step for you in your business career? Yeah, well, uh, I was with the Great North Run Company mm. um, until 2013. So I basically, I worked, I had a really nice um, build-up in that company, actually, because um, it was straight after Beijing. You know, the Olympic torch was handed to the UK. So that next four years to be involved in sport in that period in the UK was really, really special. And all of the athletes that I was working with from a British, actually from a global perspective, were all in that four-year period, you know, we had great city games twice a year. It, it went from being just Usain. There wasn't a single sprint in the world that I hadn't, that I've not, that I've not dealt with. You know, the Alison Felixes, the Sanya Richards, you know, the Tyson Gays, the you know, Usain and all the, and all the, all the British guys, like all the top British guys. Um, and so I, I built up some great relationships with all these guys and, and then to see them all and the swimmers as well, you know, all the swimmers. I mean, we smashed the Olympics in yeah. 2012. Um, and it was really nice getting involved with all of these different sports as well and appreciating the commitment that these kids essentially, mm. uh, um, you know, you know, young adults are, are, are committing. And, and then to see them all, to see them all then perform at 2012, you know, cause I was still in the job at 2012. So I didn't leave till 2013. Mm. So I was very much in the job of signing athletes for the event, you know, to the Olympics and, and, um, and then early 2013. And, and it was just like, uh, it was such a proud moment to see all these guys that had, 
you know, that I'd worked with him for four years performing in London. Yeah. It was just, uh, it was incredible. Mate, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. So what was yeah, the next step? Nice. What was the next step for you? And what was you, what was going through your mind to say, right, I'm done with the Great North Run and all the events. In your next movement in your business career, what was that? Well, that was um, stepping off then in 2013 and, and wanting to get back into sportswear, um, corporate environment, if you like. A lot of my friends within the corporate world who I left at Nike, I saw progressing on. And for me, um, at the time, in the event side of things, I mean, you know, you, you work in events and you, you, sport happens at weekends. Um, and I was working like 27 weekends a year. You know, if I, it wasn't my events I was going to, I was going to other people's events, you know, you know, it's a traveling circus. It's how you get the athletes and stuff, yeah. um, albeit fantastic. But, um, you know, it was a point in my life where I wanted to think about starting a family. Um, you can't really <laughs> do that if you're never around. <laughs> Midweek. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, but, but also, um, you know, I looked at the, I looked at the, the lifestyle, a lot of the guys in the sport and it's, it's, you know, it's quite lonely. It's individual. Um, a lot of them didn't have families and stuff and, and it wasn't, it wasn't really what I fancied doing. Um, not for the rest of my life. Um, and I, I can't quite fancy getting back in the corporate world. So, um, went back to, ended up going back into Puma actually. So one of my old friends at Nike, he was a general manager for Puma at the time, give me a call, said, Kenny, do you fancy, uh, fancy a change at the right time? You know, mm. one you know, door opens when you, mm. when you're least expecting it. And, um, and yeah, so then went back into the, went back into the sales route at Puma UK, helped them take on their running strategy a bit more seriously and actually help them take on the, the commercial sponsorship of the great run series when I stepped in there. So that helped to elevate Puma's, you know, um, serious approach to being a performance brand yep. and not just seen as a, as a lifestyle brand. How much, how um, much, how much roughly did uh, Puma pay for that sponsorship? About a quarter of a million. Quarter of a mil. Yeah. 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 About, yeah. But it, I mean, it's almost kind of the, the figures and those sort of things are a bit irrelevant because what you've got to do is you've got to spend the same and then some yeah. on actually activating so you buy the right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, with all the stuff yeah. that you do, yeah. Um, there's no point in a business just coming in, giving you a load of dough and sticking yeah. some boards up and walking away. You yeah. want them to come in and Engage. deliver experience. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. And, and and so so your punters walk away thinking, I don't know, say Heineken sponsor your festival. Mm. It's like, oh, we got all this Heineken stuff and they were great. And it's just like, wow, love, love, love. And it's yeah. um it's that reciprocal relationship that you want. So within Puma, you're you in charge of the lifestyle division because that really boomed at I don't know what year it was, but I remember Puma really coming back on the scene and really taking off again. Yeah, so you had um, Puma's had a couple of little spikes, uh, just from a UK perspective. I'll, I'll stick to that. So between 2000 and about 2003, um, Puma had a little spike in the lifestyle market with a shoe called the Mostro and the Sprint. I remember if you remember the Mostro had that little Velcro strap, yeah. low profile. Um, that went nuts in around that period. Um, and then there was all like the low profile motorsport inspired stuff. Cause Puma's like the market leader globally in, in motorsport. Um, you know, they've got, they, they sponsor all the teams, McLaren F1, Ferrari, they've got Red Bull racing. Um, and they develop and design all of the, um, uh, the kit that the drivers wear and all the pit teams, uh, in the pit lane. So whenever you see, you know, Lewis Hamilton screeching to a, to a halt in the pit lanes, you'll see them all wearing the, um, the low profile driving shoes, um, speed cats, whatever they call them. Um, so that was kind of a huge trend because Puma's always been in that mm. um, and they've always stayed in that. No other sports brand has really come in and, and, and had a and had a good go at it. So Puma owned that um, outright, really, pretty much. 
Um, so they had kind of a spike there, but that was all that Puma were known for. And there was a little bit, they went to like high fashion stuff, like the Jill Sander collaborations that they did. They did some Alexander McQueen stuff, but it never, those collaborations at the top never really gave the mass market consumer. It, it wasn't really like a trickle down effect to, to really explode Puma on the scene after 2003. Um, and so it kind of bounced along the bottom. It wasn't really serious about performance. Like it was a sport performance brand, but like you remember Puma King football boots and yeah. that's about anybody our age and yeah. above thinks of when they think of Puma. So it was a big challenge. So the, uh, when the new chief executive came in uh, around about 2012, 2013, I think it was, um, a really inspirational guy called Bjorn Gulden came from Adidas, Pandora, um, ex-pro footballer. Um, he came in and he, and he changed the mindset. He was, you know, we are a sports performance brand first and foremost. We make performance product to perform, to do sport in. As long as we're focusing too much on the fashion side of things, then we're just opening ourselves up for competition like the Zara's and the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the real high fashion brands, which is, which is a, they, he was keen, he was key to keep the identity of what Puma was all about in its sport, its performance and innovation. Um, and without that, you can't really innovate because what are you innovating for? Just You're just going after trends then, aren't you? And mm. then you just end up on the catwalks and it's a, it's a little bit harder and then it's subjective as well. So he kind of flicked that around. But then at the same time, he, he recognized that the lifestyle segment is still a huge part of the, the opportunity. And also looking at what the consumers resonate with. Um, and at that time in 2013, 2014, you know, this idea of um, um, celebrity endorsees coming on as like design partners or, you know, getting celebrities to wear your product. It was kind of just a new thing. Up until then, it all had been about like Cristiano Ronaldo wearing your boots or your, or your shoes for going on the pub in or, and that crossover from a sports performer trying to market a lifestyle product. It wasn't, it wasn't really working in, in, in some extent. There's like, apart from some of the U S basketballers, how many sports guys do you know that are really cool enough to, you know, to sell lifestyle product as well? I mean, the odd footballer, yeah. Uh, but then you've got to put them in front of a mic and then, you know, articulation isn't great. And, you know, then they end up doing something naughty in a nightclub and then you can't use them, you know, that sort of stuff. So, um, so that was where the celebrity endorsement really like pop stars started to come into it. You know, Adidas back in the day were the first ones to really try this with run DMC. Um, that was, that was kind of, um, when that first came about and Addy have always been really good at this whole music lifestyle link. They're kind of known for that. Nike have always not really got it right. They've always kind of been, going after this let's put you know let's put ronaldinho in this lifestyle shoe and it'll be great because yeah. everyone thinks ronaldinho's cool well it don't work like that yeah. so what puma did then is puma were quite smart they got a hold of rihanna um around about 2014 from from barbados um, yeah, is, yeah yeah right and actually funnily enough uh the link there was one of the sprinters ryan brathwaite that i brought to manchester in um 2009 or 2010 uh, world silver medalist he's cousins to Rihanna and she was in town at the time playing and he went he went off to see her isn't it funny that <laughs> all but, about uh, the context exactly yeah, yeah I should ring Ryan yeah. up there and get, 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 get Rihanna on the case um, but um, but yeah so so Puma engaged in this partnership with Rihanna um, as, a, as a creative director for this collection and it was the first time that it had ever been done um, really that in depth, not just like, here's a, here's a, here's a pop star, put some shoes on a couple of photos, stick it on Instagram or Facebook and away mm. you go. It really getting her into the design process and engaging her. Um, and because of that, it was like such a huge hit with the, the female consumer. Um, and that's really what catapulted Puma back onto the, 
the maps if you uh, back onto the awareness of the consumer out there. And a lot of the time, if you've got a female consumer getting engaged in a product or a brand, the guys normally follow a couple of years later. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. the process. The process is a lot faster now because of social media and um, you know, kids now in the UK know what the kids in France are doing, know what the kids in Germany are doing. You know, everything travels. Everything travels so much faster now um, because of that, um, and that was that was the thing that catapulted Puma back up to success. Um, that whole Rihanna Fenty thing, wow. and, and at the time I was put in charge. I was like two years in the UK with Puma, and then I moved to Puma. Then put me in charge of Foot Locker Europe, looking after the Foot Locker business, selling Puma stuff in a Foot Locker. And it was right at that time, and we went from like three million euros overnight to um, thirty-five million um, within the space of eighteen months. I mean, it wasn't just it wasn't just the Rihanna effect. That was only that was about so 30% just, of the business. So three million to thirty-five million turnover in eighteen, Over 18 months. months. Yeah, wow! Yeah, yeah. Wow! And that was. Yeah. And, and you, are you saying a lot of that was to do with Rihanna as well? Part of the uh, part of the business. Well, plan? only only yeah, only if I can remember right. Only around about thirty percent of that number was was attributable directly to the product associated with that collection or something a little bit similar. But then what it does is that gives you it gives you brand heat in the marketplace. The consumer then starts looking at Puma more and going, oh, uh, Puma, that's that that's that Rihanna stuff. Or they associate it in a they look at it in a much cooler light than it was, yeah. you know, six months before that. So it and also what it meant was I was able to I was able to leverage the 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 Fenty product, the Rihanna product. It's called Fenty. That was that's yeah. that's what she calls a, a commercial stuff. Um, and I was able to leverage that. In order to get other stuff in to get a chance yeah. as well, because you're you're fighting for shelf space. Yeah. You know, I would be going in saying, "Hey guys, Andy from Puma, here's all my stuff." Where an hour before that, they had the Adidas guys and doing the same thing, or the Nike guys. Yeah. You know, and like, and depending where you are on the pecking order, like I was one percent of, Pu- of Foot Locker's business in Europe, one percent. Mm. Yeah. So um, at the time when I went on board, when I when I, you know, there, there's the keys, Kenny, go and sort foot, go and sort the Foot Locker business out. First day in the office, right? What's the turnover? Three million. I was like, is that it? <laughs> 650 stores in e-com and we can only get three million in. And how many returns do we take back? It's like, okay. So anyway, so it was it was extremely underwhelming, is probably the best way to put it. Because I'd come from the UK and I knew what business we were doing with JD or ASOS or Office Group, or you know, I knew what the numbers were there. Um so I came in, I was like, okay, here we are, three million. Well, there's come. <laughs> Can't get any worse, but not much worse. <laughs> so basically, what so, tweaks, uh, what tweaks did you do to take it from three million to thirty-five million in eighteen months? Yeah, so the the um, the the brand heat that was generating from the the Rihanna Fenty campaign, what that meant is I could leverage I could leverage that product in order to get other product in, other product ranges in. So um, you know, not just women's Fenty stuff. I could get other styles of women's footwear and I say, well, you could take that, but you're going to have to take this, 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 and this as well. Okay. Same with men's. It was like, you're going to do that. Then I want, I want to, I want a men's test in 50 stores in your best stores in Europe. I want a, an apparel test at 150 stores. And I'll bring in with that. I was able to bring in, you know, take, um, another deal I did is I ensured that because, um, Antoine Griezmann, French international mm-hmm. footballer. Mm-hmm. Um, so he at the time was a Puma athlete and wasn't being used for any lifestyle stuff, uh, that Puma was doing. And he was, he was pretty cool. Actually he was, you know, he was a young lad, uh, you know, coming up on the scene, one of the top stars, um, for the forthcoming football championships. And I, and I actually pitched into Puma international. I said, right, I want him exclusively 
to be used in all creative lifestyle content exclusively for Foot Locker Europe. And I sold it into the Foot Locker guys. They were happy with it. So we had like, you know, this great asset with Fenty and Rihanna, which everybody got access to, but we had some exclusive for Foot Locker. And also I went in and tied in this whole um, exclusivity deal using Antoine Griezmann, who is a big European name as well, which Foot Locker were happy with. And then on the back of that, you tie in, you know, growth plans and, you know, we'll, we'll have them for three years. We'll take, we'll build a power collection specifically with Antoine and Foot Locker um, and also tie in some footwear stories, mm. get some in-store appearances, you know, do some, do loads of different activations. Yeah. Again, going back to, like I said, you don't just slam dunk them with money of and course. then walk away. You've got to, you've got to activate them all. So if you go, um, if you go back to Rihanna here, one of the biggest pop stars in the world, what did that deal look like that you uh, that you got over the line? Was it a three year deal, two year deal, one well, year deal? Well, no. So, well, that that deal itself. Um, so the deal with Puma was done by the specialist team in LA. Yeah. Um, so the so the um, um, the um, the team who are responsible for signing the the lifestyle assets, they're based in LA and they worked with uh, Rihanna's management at the time to get that done. So then, what happens there is. The deal is done under a certain number of uh, conditions, and one of the conditions that, that Rihanna wanted was um, to be creative director for the collection. So then she would then fly to Germany, head office, sit with our um, product designers at the time, and then actually work on the collection. And she was incredibly creative, and, and as you can imagine, such a creative artist yeah. uh, herself. You know, all of the stuff she writes, you know, she reinvents herself all the time. Um, she was extremely, um, extremely great to work with. The only challenge was actually then getting meetings with her after that because she was always flying around the world. So the poor product team had to chase her around. Like, fly, yeah, li- literally like with samples because you, you got because she had to have, she, she had to have personal sign off on, on the finished product as well. And if she wasn't happy, it's a bit like Kanye West with all the easy Adidas stuff. Yeah. He is, is as much as some people think he's a, you know, he comes out with crazy stuff, yeah. which he absolutely does. Um, I've had meetings with the, the top guy who manages Kanye in this relationship with Adi and, and the information that he told me is he's like the most engaged person that the Adidas guys have ever come across with regard to detail and getting things right. And he's, he really thinks, I mean, he's a, he's a genius and obviously geniuses normally mean eccentricity yeah. comes along with it as well. And uh, it's a bit like going back to Barry talking about Ronnie O'Sullivan, you know, you take the rough with the smooth yeah. in, in, in the thing that, you know, Ronnie, Ronnie's crazy to work with, but he's a genius at the same time. Yeah. So it's, it's like all these guys, they just have, um, they have these, these streaks of creativity, which is in, so impressive. At the same time, they've got these other things that you've got to kind of roll with, with as yeah. well. How much money did Rhiannon yeah. get paid? Well, I could probably do a Google now. I think, I'm, I'm thinking it was around about 10. Wow. Wow, but, wow, wow. But is again, that, is that a, so, somebody, can go, somebody listening can Google that yeah. and, and, and message in or something. Was that something like that? Would that be a 10 million pound or 10 million dollar upfront? Or is that paid over three years? Or is she? Yeah. So, t- uh, well, well, well. So, typically, um, just going back to things like lead deals, you know, um, it's like footballers' deals. You know, it's spread over a certain length of a contract. You know, you meet obligations. This, 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 and this. It's the same sort of thing um, with anything. You know, X amount of appearances. Um, it, but again, with the with with deals like that, the real top top guys and girls, and there's all sorts of other stuff thrown in as well. You know kickback from sales um you know equity and companies whatever you know mm. i mean they're, they're 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 at real serious level of negotiation do you, do you know any of the stories about michael jordan because he's kept his contracts all the way through is he a shareholder within nike or has he got some kind of business deal that he's still earning a fortune from his original nike basketball boots 
Well, he's paid um, he's paid royalties. I think I think he's paid royalties. He's certainly paid a percentage of the turnover of the Jordan brand yeah. with that. Um, and it's something like uh, I, I read something the other the other the other month actually on Jordan. Something like he's going to get paid a billion or something this year, yeah, or something really, crazy yeah, like that. Yeah. But then, but then it was. But then, when you think of the turnover, I mean, Nike turns over. Uh, it's going to do about um, thirty-seven billion this year. Um, and, and Nike's ambition is—I'm trying to think—it was two years ago. I think they had the ambition. They put the statement out there in five years' time. They wanted it to be a fifty billion-dollar company. Uh, ironically, building a load of offices on their campus, which they probably pause and build on now with COVID, because yeah. yeah. no one needs offices anymore. Yeah. But um, everything will be fine. Um, but you know, when Nike puts a statement in the ground, puts a puts a puts a flag in the ground, they normally achieve it. Yeah. Um, and you know, as Jordan as a percentage of that, um, I don't know, maybe globally, I don't know, maybe Jordan's about ten percent of that. So you know a bit a billion off uh, a billion off those numbers into jordan's big, back pocket is big, fine big numbers. Yeah, yeah. Kaney, yeah. this has been an absolutely wonderful insight into your journey over the last 20 years since we were partying in uh, nightclubs in loughborough back in the day <laughs> <laughs> echoes <laughs> echoes exactly sticky carpets <laughs> sticky carpets Kaney, a pleasure mate as always you're an absolute legend thoroughly enjoyed you thanks for your honesty thank you yeah and um i will speak to you very soon buddy yeah thanks a lot take Here's care much. mate Bye-bye. Cheers, bye-bye. Bye. bye.